please join with me in prayer. Oh God, may your spirit draw near and speak to us words and wisdom that I could never find on my own. Please, God, be the preacher and don't let me get in the way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I was standing with the choir uh, at the back waiting for the processional and my wife came in with our two daughters and son-in-law. Uh, uh, they did not come in with me and so the choir had no idea who it was entering. Uh, but my wife came up to me ever so briefly and reached up and kissed me full on the mouth and spoke a word and turned and walked away. Tony was standing nearby watching, had never met Paige. And so I walked over to him and said, I think it is so hospitable of Duke Chapel to appoint a beautiful woman to kiss the guest preacher I've preached in so many places, and never before has this occurred. Thank you for welcoming us here. Thank you, Carol, and uh, this wonderful intern who did so much to make me feel at home. The music, and those of you on a holiday weekend who could have been elsewhere, thanks to all of you for... Uh, the privilege of standing again in this pulpit. I've been here before, but every time is like the first time. It's really a compliment to a preacher to stand in this place. We don't take it lightly. Now there are compliments and there are compliments. Last year, probably about a year ago this time, I was introduced to a woman who was a big fan of Marble Collegiate Church, and uh, every time she visited New York, would come to our congregation. She didn't know me. Uh, she was a fan of Marble, a fan of Norman Vincent Peale, a fan of Arthur Caliandro, and simply knew that I was the guy who had succeeded them. And, and so I think she wanted to compliment the church, but it wasn't there, I was. And so she labored to come up with a compliment for someone she really had never met before, which is not an easy thing to do. But I admired her grit. She looked at me and said, you know, for a person your age, I thought this is not going to end well. When you begin a conversation by saying, let's confess up front, you are a geriatric. It's not going to a good place. But she said, you know, for a person your age, you don't have many wrinkles. How do you do that? And I thought, really? It's, is that the best you could do? I mean, you could have lied and said, I've watched you on TV, I've read some of your books, I like your tie, make something up. For a person your age, you don't have many wrinkles, how do you do that? Well, I figured if that's the question, then I'll give the answer. So I said, you really want to know? Oh, yes, I do. I said, okay, it has nothing to do with potions or lotions or Botox or facelifts or any of that. Here's my theory. Every human being is born into the world with a certain specific 
allotment of skin. It's all we have. We get no more. The secret to fighting wrinkles is to force enough food in that it stretches the skin as far as it'll go and wrinkles disappear. And she looked at me like, I think he's kidding. But from the looks of him, maybe he's not. But she was not deterred. She said, well, I am sure that a lot of people have seen Jesus in that round little face of yours. There are compliments and there are compliments. And uh, I want to tell you today, uh, seriously and sincerely, how complimented and gratified I am to be back preaching again at Duke. I know a handful of you. I don't know most of you, but I know a good deal about most of you. You are intelligent people. You are well-educated. You are unusually attractive. If you could see yourself from my vantage point, for people your age, you have hardly any wrinkles. <laughs> Some of you have suffered losses. Loss of a job, loss of a marriage, loss of a loved one, loss of a dream. Some of you have wrestled seriously with fears in times past related to medical situations that felt dire at the moment. Some of you may be frightened right now waiting for test results to come in. Some of you as students in this great institution or one like it had lofty dreams of who you were going to be and what you were going to accomplish, but in your mind at least, those dreams never came true. Even though you knew other people no more intelligent and perhaps less gifted, but your dreams came true for them. Some of you, over the course of your lives, have done everything you know how consistently, volunteering, contributing, working to make a broken world a better place, and yet look at it. From North Korea to Russia to Syria to Yemen to Iran to Venezuela to the current morass in Washington, D.C., and you wonder, did all the things I did over all those years make any difference at all? If you're a normal cross-section of American adulthood at the moment, one out of every three of you, no matter how together you look to me, and you really do, but one out of every three of you right now is dealing with some level of depression. One out of every two feels unloved or inadequately loved. Three out of every four experiences some measure of loneliness. Frederick Beekner was right when he said... There is a brokenness inside us all, an emptiness, a sneaking feeling that all is not well within our skin.
And so I know that when you heard those powerful words read, that promise of Jesus, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Some of you at least were thinking, it's a great idea, but I have no idea how to find it. I want to think about that with you for a few moments this morning. There are all kinds of quests for peace that have to be addressed from grand university chapels to little rural parishes and everywhere in between. Uh, The quest for global peace, for peace in the midst of wars and rumors of wars, for peace in face of the great social issues. But you can't preach every sermon in one sermon. And I know Luke, and I know Carol, and I know what they do, and the quality of guest preachers they have. I know those topics are being addressed. I also know that some of us bring that sense that all's not well within our skin. And so I want to think with you just briefly this morning about this quest for personal peace. I want to say three things. First of all, our faith tells us that peace is not the absence of conflict. That's what Hollywood would have us believe, or Hallmark cards, or the spa down the street. But what did Jesus say, and where did he say it? Every text must be read in context. These words today were spoken in the upper room maybe an hour before Jesus went out to the Garden of Gethsemane and crashed on his knees, and it says his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood, and in anguish, in anguish, he cried out to God, please let this cup pass from me. But the cup didn't pass. He was betrayed. He went from there to the illegal trial in the courtyard of Caiaphas and then to the scourging and then to Pilate and then to the cross. It was in the context of abject suffering that he could see at an end that he said to his friends, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. Not as the world understands, not as the world defines peace, but something different. Not the absence of conflict, but the power to live in the midst of it. Or think about St. Paul when he wrote to the Philippians. His favorite church of all the churches he ever established or served, he loved those people and he knew they were in peril. There was a crazy man on the throne in Rome. His name was Nero. And Paul knew he was coming after them. We have seen it a thousand times throughout history. If you have someone who suffers from narcissism bordering on madness and also possesses unlimited power, an explosion will erupt. And that was Nero. Nero fed Christians to lions just for the entertainment of it. Nero burned Christians alive in his nighttime flower garden so that he could see the shrubbery and relax enough to go to sleep. That's who Nero was, and he was coming for the Philippians. And Paul wrote to them from a prison cell in Rome where he knew Nero had already come for him and would have him executed. And what did Paul say? Paul said to them what you heard Carol say as we began worship. Paul talked to them of a peace that passes understanding, 
A peace that the world just cannot comprehend. A peace that the world cannot provide. And a peace that the world cannot take away. But it's not found in the absence of conflict. That's not where you and I live, is it? Uh, we, we don't live in a world that's all warm and soft and fuzzy and Shangri-La and picture perfect. We live in a world where you and I shudder at the sound of words like war and cancer, Alzheimer's and AIDS, uh, divorce and disease and death. And it's in that kind of a world that Jesus says, I will bring you peace, not as the world understands it. So where do we find that? Two things, two things. First of all, peace is found in the presence of purpose. Before Jesus spoke of peace that night in the upper room, he knelt and washed the feet of the disciples. And what did he say to them? Do you know what I've done for you? I have given you an example that as I have done to you, so should you do for others. And then after talking to them about peace, he said something else. This I command you. Only time he ever used the word command, so far as we know. This I command you, that you love one another. Those were the bookends. Peace comes, Jesus said, when we practice loving service in the world. Paige and Catherine and I, maybe three years ago, were at a Habitat for Humanity gala in uh, the financial district in New York City and they had speaker after speaker. A man toward the end of the evening stood up, and it was by the time, you know, your eyes had sort of glazed over, and they unglazed pretty quickly when he began to talk. He had been for 30 years an employee with Habitat. He was a volunteer, originally a school teacher, but he met and just fell in love with uh, Millard Fuller and Jimmy Carter, and he said, I want to do this permanently, full-time. So he went to Fuller, he was hired, 30 years, his job was to show up on the first day of a project and introduce the workers to the family who would be receiving the home and, and get them together for the sweat equity of the project. Then he would leave and do it again and again. He would come back on the very last day when the home had been completed and there's the presentation of the key ceremony. The workers would hand him the key and he would hand it to somebody designated uh, in the receiving family. And he said there was a script. It wasn't written. We just knew it was going to happen. Every time I gave a key to a family member, inevitably they would say, thank you. Thank you for giving us a home. And then he said, I would transform into Chip or Joanna Gaines. And I would say, well, we hope you'll live here happily ever after. And that's the way it always went. So he was there, there was a mother, father, son, and daughter receiving the key to their new home. And he took the key and he handed it to the wife, the mother who had been designated to receive it and to say a word or two. And he said, it was according to script. The tears understandably began to come. And he said in a, a broken voice, she said to me, thank you. 
thank you for giving us a home. And then he said, I knew my next line. I know what I'm supposed to say. But suddenly said something else came. I heard myself saying something. It wasn't scripted. It wasn't planned. I didn't know what was going to happen. Somewhere down deep inside of me, these words just flowed. And I listened to myself, he said, and I thought, oh, Lord, this is my truth. Why haven't I known till now? thank you for giving us a home she said and he answered no no thank you and all the others like you for 30 years and all the others yet to come thank you for giving me a life It was in a sense of sacred purpose, doing something to make the world a little bit better, one family at a time, that he found his peace. So, give your life to something bigger than your life. And peace will be given back, not as the world gives, Feed the hungry, house the homeless, advocate for social justice. Tutor child, visit a nursing center. Think of somebody today that you know, those people I described who are lonely or inadequately loved. Think of somebody you know who's struggling. Send the text, make the call. Write the email just to say you're not in it by yourself. I'm in it with you. When we throw loving kindness out into the world, the universe throws peace back to us. One other thing. Peace is not found in the absence of conflict, not even close. Peace is found in the presence of purpose, and peace is also found in the presence of presence itself. Jesus said, I will pray to God that God will send to you a comforter, a divine presence. You and I call it Holy Spirit. That's the church phrase. There's a wonderful Greek word for Holy Spirit. The word is paraclete. You know what it means, right? I mean, if you're going to use the term spirit, you ought to at least know what you're saying when you say it. You know what paraclete means? One who walks alongside. Jesus didn't say, I will ask God to send a sorcerer to wave a magic wand to make all your pains and problems go away. I will pray that God will send a comforter, one to walk alongside you, step by step, moment by moment, day by day, so that you will never be alone. A couple of years ago, maybe three or four, uh, Paige and I were in South Africa. The church we served in New York City was deeply involved in numerous mission projects there. We went just to see them, a homeless shelter in Johannesburg, a school in Soweto, a 
wonderful orphanage in Bacibello and other things as well. One day we went to Pretoria and we stood at the foot of the statue of Nelson Mandela outside the government buildings and we took a selfie of us and Nelson which seemed somehow satisfying to me. And we talked as we stood there about this man and the influence he had on that country and the influence he had on the world. His was one of the voices that brought the wicked racist system of apartheid down. He was a person of color speaking to white power in South Africa and simply saying that all persons, everybody, should have equal opportunity and equal privilege. And people in power never really want to hear that from people who don't have power yet. So they locked him up for 27 years. 27 years in prison simply for saying that everybody deserves the same shot at life. He went on to become the president of South Africa and this grand figure globally. Toward the end of his life, he is reported to have chatted with a friend about the prison years. And he said to her, they were as hard as you would imagine them to be. And yet, in my loneliness, I never really felt alone. It was as if he said, and she said he stared out like he was trying to find exactly the right word. It was as if there were, there were a, a spirit that just hovered there. And in my weary weakness, it would cradle me in unseen arms. And in the nighttime, it would whisper to me of peace. Barbara Brown Taylor said, when the night is dark, and the skies are still. God comes. I don't know most of you. I wish I did. But I don't. But I know something about most of you. I know that you have traveled roads that were broken and bumpy. I know that your lives sometimes feel almost possessed by stresses and strains. I know that you have tears and fears and sighs too deep for words. But I also know that if we invest ourselves every single day in some way large or small in living for a sacred purpose in doing something just something to make a bad world a little bit better if we do that every day and if in the midst of it we pause now and again in the silence and the darkness and we get real still 
we will fill the cradle of unseen arms and we will hear divine whispers. I know the promise Jesus made in the upper room is good for you and you and you and you and you and me. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. Therefore, you dear people, gathered in this glorious place on this beautiful day, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid.